How effective is the newly authorized Novavax COVID-19 vaccine? Find out about this and more in today's PV Roundup podcast. I'm your host, Senior VP, Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, coming to you once again from the Pioneer Valley in Western Massachusetts. Here are today's stories. The FDA has issued an emergency use authorization for the Novavax COVID-19 vaccine adjuvanted for the prevention of COVID-19 in adults aged 18 years and older. The vaccine is administered as a two-dose primary series, three weeks apart. The vaccine contains a SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and Matrix M adjuvant. Efficacy of the vaccine was evaluated in an ongoing study of approximately 17,200 individuals who received the vaccine and approximately 8,300 individuals who received a saline placebo. The results showed that overall, the vaccine was 90.4% effective in preventing mild, moderate, or severe COVID-19. Cases of moderate or severe COVID-19 were reported in participants who received the vaccine, compared with nine cases of moderate COVID-19 and four cases of severe COVID-19 reported in the placebo recipients. In a subset of individuals aged 65 years or older, the vaccine was 78.6% effective. It is important to note, however, that the clinical trial was conducted prior to the emergence of the Delta or Omicron variants. The safety of vaccine was assessed in approximately 26,000 participants who received the vaccine and approximately 25,000 who received placebo. The most commonly reported side effects were pain and tenderness, redness and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, muscle pain, headache, joint pain, nausea and vomiting, and fever. Approximately 21,000 vaccine recipients had at least two months of safety follow-up after their second dose. As a condition of the EUA, Novavax will conduct studies to further assess the vaccine's safety, including the risks of myocarditis and pericarditis. In our next story, we learn that the World Health Organization has released an analysis of 61 bacterial vaccine candidates to combat antimicrobial resistance in various stages of clinical development and 94 candidates in preclinical development. The report breaks down vaccines and priority pathogens into four broad categories based on the feasibility of generating a vaccine. Those are very high, high, moderate, and low. The very high pipeline feasibility group includes pathogens from which vaccines already exist, including typhoid, streptococcus pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenzae type B, and tuberculosis. Candidates in the high feasibility group include vaccines targeting extraintestinal pathogenic Escherichia coli, Salmonella, Enterica, Servovi, Paratyphi A, Neisseria gonorrhoeae, and Clusteroides difficile. Each of these pathogens has multiple candidates in a clinical development, including one each in phase three clinical trials. The moderate feasibility group includes priority pathogens from which a vaccine candidate has been identified but is in early stages of clinical development, including Klebsiella pneumonia, Shigella, and non-typhoidal Salmonella. In the low feasibility group, priority pathogens have no current vaccine candidate. These include Acenobacter baumani, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Enterococcus facium, Enterobacter species, Helicobacter pylori, Campylobacter species, and Staphylococcus aureus, many of which are acquired in hospitals. In addition to providing information about bacterial vaccine pipeline, the report also aims to influence research and development, inform investment decisions, and influence policies and action. 
And in our final story, we learned that leveraging remote technology and decentralizing tools may increase patient participation in cancer clinical trials. A cross-sectional internet-based survey published in JAMA Network Open showed that among 1,183 patients with cancer and survivors of cancer, 60% to 85% reported that they were more likely to enroll in a trial if participation-related time and travel burden was decreased through the use of remote technology. Willingness to participate in trials requiring additional effort varied by income and age. Among individuals older than 55 years, 26% said that they would only participate in trials no further from their home than their regular care healthcare provider compared with 16% of younger respondents. Higher income earners were more likely to participate in trials requiring additional effort. 62% of those in households earning more than $125,000 per year said that they would participate compared with 41% of those households earning less than $70,000 per year. And that's today's Medical Roundup. Thank you for joining me for this episode of PV Roundup Podcast. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. You can send any tips or suggestions to editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to Gabrielle Mastello for selecting and editing our stories and to Sean Mullen for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.